0: Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here and welcome to another bonus episode of the Urban Farm Podcast where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. I have said it many times, I am a lifelong learner, and I am excited to let you know about a unique, global online event made just for those of us who want to grow our own food. In this four-day online learning opportunity, a collection of visionary growers, gardeners, permaculturists, and homesteaders share garden hacks, slow tools, gadgets, and gardening technologies. Join tens of thousands of budding growers and learn how to save time, energy, and money while doing what you love most, growing your own food and medicine. Visit urbanfarm.org forward slash gardenhacked to register for this free online summit.
1: Welcome, welcome everybody. Greg Peterson coming to you from the Urban Farm in the heart of Phoenix, Arizona. Tonight, I am here with Bill McDorman for our monthly seed chat. Uh, Welcome Bill.
2: Hello Greg. I'm honored as always to be here.
1: And it is always so much fun we always make some great noise in the world let's put it that way
2: what a great topic to have fun around it just offers so much
1: no i was just thinking
2: about that all the people doing podcasts tonight in the world we probably got you know one of the better topics i think
1: yeah well i happen to believe that the single most important thing and the single most revolutionary thing we can be doing right now is learning how to grow our own food oh yeah with the shape of the current food system which when you really look at, and I'm talking United States, when you really look at the food distribution system in this country, it's pretty eloquent. I mean, it's pretty amazing that somehow we manage pretty much to feed 300 plus million people a day, three meals. That's like a billion meals a day that are being served up to the people in the United States. Yeah, that's pretty mind boggling. But on the other side of that coin, if the system fails, I'm not talking Mad Max here. I'm talking about there's a power outage in San Diego County in September of 2014 and there's powers out for three days. I have friends that lived through that and it was, you know, it was mayhem. They weren't rioting, but there was challenges. In any urban area, we have a three-day supply of food. And I believe that the single most important thing and the most revolutionary thing that we can be doing is learning how to grow our own food.
2: What do they say? 70% of the fresh fruits and vegetables consumed on the East. Coast, in the winter, come across five bridges on the Mississippi. Wow. One of those interstates, Interstate 10, the bridge was washed out in a monsoon rain here in between Arizona and California. Same thing, shut it down yep. for three days. Wow. That is disruptive. You're right. It's an elegant system, but it's a just-in-time inventory exactly. system. Well, which is it really what we want. It doesn't take long for it to run out.
1: Right. That's what right. we want because we want our fresh food, Right. Right. Yeah. I just had an interesting thought. I did seed school, in-person seed school with you guys in 2011. It was over the summer solstice in June 21st. And while we were in seed school, I still have this article somewhere. There was an article in the USA Today that said like 75% of all of our fruits and vegetables come from what they said was overseas. When I dug down and found out where the quote came from, really it was from outside of the country. So, 75% of our fruits and vegetables that we eat come from outside of the country. That's just
2: mind-boggling to me. Wow. For starters, we better have good trade agreements with them.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we won't go there.
2: We might want to pay attention to that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, it gets back.
2: I'm just making a point. I think it is an intelligent thing that you're seeing. It's an activity taking place all over the globe. People are waking up and shortening their supply lines for their Mm -hmm. food. They're doing it for environmental reasons. You know, they get healthier food. It has less impact on their environment. If they do, it takes less fossil fuels to move them around. They're doing it because they're reclaiming their culture and their identity. Mm -hmm. They're finding out who they were and what they used to eat. You know, the people in the South Eastern United States are doing a great job. David Edwards and Glenn Roberts are rediscovering the whole cuisine that happened in the Southeast in the 1700s. Wow. And it was fabulous. It's happening for those reasons. You know, it's happening for political reasons. People are just don't trust that they're going to be able to get their food from their neighbors anymore. And then throw in the intensity of storms, especially hurricanes and other things that are disrupting yeah. supply lines. It's just becoming more and more accepted that that's what we do. We can actually propel our local economies better if we have local food. There's millions, if not billions, that we found out here in Arizona of dollars that leave the state, over $3 billion every year just to buy food. And about 98% of the food consumed here comes in from outside the state. All those dollars could stay here. So it's being pushed by the local AZ first people. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of reasons for it. It's really an interesting time. When I got started saving seeds, we didn't even have a local food movement. You know, I remember helping start the very first farmer's market movement. Missoula, Montana. And it would seem like such a radical idea at the time. (laughs) No kidding. And now you look back and you see how important and powerful that is. And the local brew pubs doing their own beer. So that's really great. But what we don't have are local seeds yet. And that's where we're turning our attention. Where do you get your seeds? You know, a lot of people buy seeds from catalogs. Mm -hmm. That's the great American, you know, wintertime passion is to, you know, look through your seed catalogs. And I used to do that too. I loved it. But I think there's a misconception after being in the seed business. You know, I ran a small company for 28 years. One of the things I learned is that very few seed companies who print catalogs grow very few of their own seeds. There's this hidden sort of hierarchy of industry behind them. I'm trying not to be judgmental about it. I'm just saying that's the way it is and I think that gardeners would change their habits a little bit or at least question and maybe even open up the possibility to get better seeds if they understood that a little better and I think that's what I want to talk about a little bit tonight I think it's just an important topic for us every time we understand the world around us more you know the better off we are so
1: where do we get our seeds from that is a good question in fact we do an amazing event here every year in Phoenix we've just recently figured out that we can replicate it elsewhere so if anybody interested in doing a Great American Seed Up in your area, you should reach out to us, greatamericanseedup.org. But we do this event. It's a seed bazaar where we buy bulk 70 different varieties of seeds and put them in popcorn buckets in a room. And people come in and scoop their, it's a bulk buy. So people come in and scoop their own seeds, so like a teaspoon of basil seeds, which isn't enough basil to last anybody a lifetime. Right, Bill?
2: <laughs> oh. More than enough, probably.
1: Yeah. You know, for a dollar and a quarter. So we've got the, all the systems set up to do that. But I often get the question, people say, well, where are you getting the seeds at? To be up front with therein you, we don't. Li- therein lies the problem. Exactly.
2: That's And again, we can talk about that. And what I want to encourage people tonight is that you can write in your questions. If you have specific questions about specific varieties and things that you buy, where they might come from, ask those questions too. Let's get everything out here tonight. If you have big questions about, you know, I heard today that ChemChina, which just purchased Syngenta, the largest vegetable seed company in the world, which is a chemical company from China, they are now going to buy huge amounts of the seed part of Monsanto and Bayer. Which just merged. In order wow. to merge, antitrust officials in both the EU and America said they had to sell some of their seed assets. So now those are going to Syngenta Chem China. If you want to ask questions about the mergers and the largest scale where seeds are produced, or you want to ask your own personal question about where do I get Mrs. Burns lemon basil? Write your questions in. And that's really what we can do tonight. It'll be fun. Cool. Yeah. To get back to your thing about the Great American Seed Up, you know, I played a big role in trying to find those seeds. The fact is we don't have local seeds for our local food economy or or our local backyards. You know, 97% of them come from outside your area unless you live just down the road from Johnny's Selected Seeds. And even then, years ago, I asked Rob Johnson and they've never grown more than 10 or 11% of their own seed. So even if you live in the Northeast and you buy from Johnny's and they're next door, your seeds aren't coming from where you are. I learned a lot about the industry over 28 years. I looked out, I found out who the quality people were. I learned about the land races, you know, that were really popular and some have been popular, like Black Seated Simpson for 120 years and they're popular all over the world because they work really well in lots of different conditions. And so I put together a list of seeds that would be the best that we could find for right now Mm -hmm. for the Southwest. And we got them from reputable growers. You know, it's fair trade. We try to treat everybody fair. This is the best we can do at this point. It's not all seeds from the Southwest yet. They're not all from Phoenix. But the idea is that we teach seed saving classes all day long during the great American seed up. And since, it's 90% of the cost of a packet of seeds is in the packaging, you miss that part. You can just come in and scoop them out for almost farm direct wholesale prices, Yeah. and then sit and learn how to save them during the day. You know, as an event, there's nothing else like this. And I, <laughs> I'm really proud of what we put together, Greg, because it really took Bell, Atari, our partners, Janice, a whole lifetime of experiences to try to put this together and pull something off that really accelerates the possibility that cities like Phoenix could be up and running with lots of their own seats in a relatively short period of time. If the hundreds, and now it's over 1,000 people that have come to these seed-ups in Phoenix, you know, even save a small amount of their own seeds, we've gone a long ways toward changing that underlying culture. And this should happen in every city of the country. There are already seed exchanges, there are seed libraries, but this offers an opportunity for people to bulk up quickly and get a whole new population of people in there. And that's what's so exciting about it.
1: Yeah, exactly. So you can go to greatamericanseedup.org to find out more about that. You did say the Land race. That's a term that I learned in the early aughts when I was taking botany classes at Arizona State University. I suspect that's a term that a lot of people don't know. Can you kind of tease that one apart a little bit, land, L-A-N-D-R-A-C-E? You
2: know, what it means, in some ways, it was a derogatory term when it was first being used. Let me tell you what happened. You know, in the 20s, the 30s, and the 40s in the United States, when seeds were really becoming commodified, to use a fancy term, basically, there were more and more companies trying to sell more and more seeds. They were trying to sell more and more chemicals and pharmaceuticals and everything. It became the agricultural industry. And the only part of it they really couldn't control were the seeds because they could sell seeds to farmers once. But then, as farmers have done in all of human history, at least the history of agriculture, they could save their own. And then they never had to buy them again, right? So there was always this attempt to try to get farmers to buy seeds every year, even though they could save their own. And it was kind of out of that system came this term land race. Land races were the seeds that farmers were using before modern modern industry came along And so we tried to fancy up seed breeding and put it in laboratories with guys in white coats. Now we were using Mendelian genetics and we're making it into a science to breed new seeds. Well, all the stuff that those guys started breeding and some of them went on to be famous. You know, Harlan was really big in working in Central America. What Borlaug won the Nobel Prize for a new variety of wheat. This became the Green Revolution. It revolutionized agriculture. All those things happened because of this new kind of industrial breeding, you know, scientific breeding. But it had to start from somewhere. And where they started from were the varieties of things that had worked best for farmers up to that point. yeah. And all of those things were attached to a region or an area. Farmers in each region had their own varieties of wheat and corn. They say in 1900, there were probably 30,000 varieties of wheat being grown around the world. Everybody wow. had their own. Every valley had its own variety of corn. Some of those varieties are still around and being celebrated. You know, Olaf, Colorado has a festival every year and they sell Olaf sweet corn. And it's been theirs for almost 100 years. They kept theirs. And now it's become an economic driver, you know, for their valley. But most of us just gave up and bought the advertising that said, oh, you don't want those old land races that uneducated mm. and unscientific people right. developed. You want our new modern varieties and our hybrid. And it was that line. It may sound to some folks like I'm oversimplifying, but I'm not. This was the advertising. This was the message that went through our government that changed mm-hmm. laws and based basically hoodwinked farmers into leaving that age-old practice of saving their own seeds and starting to buy them every year. So land race is really important. Now that we're kind of digging out from under what I call this industrial storm, we're realizing for all the benefits it had and all the billions of people it's fed, it's had huge negative environmental consequences. As you and I were talking at the start of the show, it's not a real durable system. There's lots of fragilities, especially if you look at climate change. So maybe now it's time to go back and design a more resilient agricultural system so we're looking back at where all modern science started when it started creating new hybrids and that is with the land races races. and there are a lot of
1: them are still around Yeah. yeah well so that makes sense now Bill and i talk a few times a month but i called him three hours ago and i said dude i just harvested like five ounces of this lettuce seed out of my yard and it's Lettuce that has been growing year after year after year in the front yard of the urban farm. It just comes back year after year. What do I call it? And you suggested I call it the urban farm landrace lettuce. So that makes sense
2: now. Yeah. We're trying to resurrect the word and this idea, you know, it's attached to your place. It's growing and taking care of itself. It obviously Mm -hmm. has great value to that. Those all would have been definitions of all the varieties that we called land races in 1930 or 1940. I had a great talk with John Navazio, who's one of the head breeders at Johnny's Selected Seed. And he was saying that in some companies, especially in the United States, work on these original land races continued clear up into the 50s, even into the early 60s. You know, Campbell's Soup worked on varieties. And Heinz, you know, the ketchup people worked on varieties of tomatoes. tomatoes. These were open pollinated land races that they kept improving and making better and better and moving farther north into Canada for production. And those seeds are all still around. So this is what we're looking for as we create a new agriculture. We're looking for these land races to start with. And it's really fun and exciting to do that.
1: Yeah. So let's cut to the chase. Where do we get seeds?
2: Well, if you buy seeds out of a catalog, I could be wrong, but my best guess after being in and around the seed industry for almost 40 years now is that unless you buy from companies that tell you exactly in the catalog where each variety is grown, uh-huh. and there are some companies like that, and then and most of them are new. You know, this is the new wave of bioregional seed companies. They're attached to regions. There's companies like Siskiyou Seeds in Williams, Oregon, and Snake River Seed Co-op in Boise, Idaho, or the Sierra Seed Co-op, which is Grass Valley, California. Those people are growing. There's a new seed co-op in Western Montana that's doing the same thing. They're starting to organize farmers and actually grow a lot of those own seeds. But it's a very small percentage, one one thousandth of 1% of the seeds being sold. Uh If most of you are buying them from a catalog, I'd say 90% or more of those seeds are not being grown by the company or anywhere near it. And many of the companies, even our organic seed companies like Territorial and High Mowing and Johnny Selected Seeds even have contracts to have organic seed grown in China. You know, as far away as China, that's the other side of the world. Not a lot of it, maybe. I don't know. You know, they're getting really secretive about where they're actually grown. That's one of the things I would encourage everyone to do because this practice won't change until we change it. If you're a consumer of seeds, if you buy seeds out of a catalog, every time, ask them exactly where those seeds were grown. You know, we need to have that information. Why? Because if you're buying stuff that's being grown at sea level in Thailand Uh and you live in Colorado Springs, wow. Maybe it's not quite adapted as well. Maybe you can find that same old land race variety like black-seeded Simpson lettuce in another catalog that grows it closer to where you are. Right. And so you can start to get more intelligent, even if you see the same varieties in every catalog. And there are a lot of them. And most likely, and I think Frank Morton from Wild Garden Seed proved this because he grew 20 varieties of black-seeded Simpson lettuce out once. Mm -hmm. By varieties, I mean he sourced it from 20 different catalogs. Wow. And they were all a little bit different, you know? So that's the point. You can, even if you find your favorite thing, find out where it's grown. The wow and have a deeper relationship with the people that are selling it to you. It's time for everyone to wake up to connect these dots a little bit better so we can get better seeds for our own gardens.
1: Yeah. Well, and ultimately, the best thing to do is, you know, go save your own seeds. I have a shoebox tub sitting in front of me. It says parsley on the front. I've started to harvest, you know, every year at the Great American Seed Up, I give away parsley seeds of parsley that's grown, right. you know, in the yard here at the urban farm. And so really, and that's been growing here for years. Really, that's the best thing to do is save your own seeds. But if you you can't, you know, obviously you don't have, you know, you don't have the seeds yet. So number one is find out where they're grown at. What else?
2: Well, yeah, you want to find out where they're grown at, but you're also touching on the reason why we do the Great American Seed Up. You know, our goal is to have all the seeds, you know, that are used to grow local food grown locally too. Seeds for Phoenix from Phoenix and the greater area. I mean, that yeah. would be the goal. That should be the goal of everybody everywhere. Right. And that just takes advantage of what seeds offer most. And that's the adaptability. It's a biological magic, you know, right. that you can take advantage of. But since we're starting at a point where almost none of the food is grown with seeds seeds. How do we get started? We got to start somewhere. Well, that's what the great American seed-ups were, is to get everybody the best seeds they could start with and get them the information they need to start saving their own. The idea isn't to come down every year and buy all your own seeds. The idea is to come and get started and learn enough that you can have your own tub of parsley seed Uh in a few years and that you can trade and give away to your neighbors and we can start making our local food system truly sustainable and resilient. The other thing to think about with sourcing your seeds is that there are wholesale seed companies that do supply a lot of the seed catalogs. Right, And some of the varieties that you see listed in seed catalogs, you know, Market More Cucumber would be another one, you know, California Wonder Peppers. There are only two or three large scale growers of those in the United States, unless, you know, they're one of these new small bioregional companies and they'll tell you where they're actually grown. If they don't tell you, they're probably sourcing them from a wholesale seed operation. And some of these are thousands of acres, you know, and some of them are non-hybrid and non-GMO. I mean, they're growing seed on an industrial scale. Some are doing it organically now, even since that's become such a niche market and fast-growing market that's required by the National Organic Program. It's really possible also on the other side of things is that you could market more cucumber seed from three or four or five different companies and it actually came out of the same original bag. Oh. <laughs> that's it. The companies you're buying it from actually just bought it in bulk from the same source. Yeah. And so that's another one of the smoke and mirrors things that happens behind the scenes. So again that's isn't you can't necessarily it. bad though, is it? No. No, I'm not. It's the way it is. And, you know, we're lucky that we have access to seeds. You know, I was asked today, Bill, what's wrong with going down to Ace and picking up my seeds at the end of the season for 10 cents a packet when they're on sale? Yeah. And there's nothing wrong ever with seeds and getting them and Mm -hmm. taking responsibility and planting them. In my own opinion, there are just better ways to do it that could serve your interests and needs better as well as your communities, as well as your planet's. You know, as Joy, who was the director at Native Seed Search, once said, you know, when you buy your seeds, in a way, you're buying a whole agricultural system. You're supporting a whole system. So I guess what I'd say to the person who goes down to ACE and buys those seeds is that do you realize that there's a 4 million square foot roboticized seed packaging facility in the Midwest that packages seeds? This was years ago. I read an article Mm -hmm. in Seed News about this. 200 separate named seed companies in the United States get all their seeds packaged at the same facility. They contract wholesale, semi-truck loads full of seeds dump in one side, and semi-truck loads of seed racks for the nation's hardware stores and big boxes come out the other side. And that's really where about 80% of the seed packets in America come from. As I said, it's more than 90%. The cost of what you pay Uh is the packaging. There's never more than two or three cents worth of seeds in any package. Right, And they're one size fits all in many cases. You can buy lily miller seeds in Florida. You can buy them up in Seattle. You can buy them in Montana. And so there's no regional specificity at all. And you're supporting this huge industrial system that we know now it's not even fair for the farmers that right. grow. These systems get bigger and bigger. It's the farmers that actually grow the seeds are the ones that are suffering most and getting squeezed out. So that's what you're supporting. And that's why they sell them for 10 cents. They're not even worth 10 cents a packet, yeah. you know, in the system that developed them. So, you know, what we're advocates of, as you say, is, wow, why not get on the other side of that and have an overabundance of seeds from saving your own? So much so that it's a bother usually, and you have to find a way to share them with other people. Right. You have to to call up your friends and say, what do I name these so I can get rid of them, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's exactly.
1: Great. So shall we take some questions? You've been pushing people to send them to us. So Yeah, please. Yeah. All right, cool. Let's see here. Karen from Cato Gap. Arkansas says where can I find a chart about duration of seeds that is how long are the different seeds viable wow
2: there is no definitive chart that I know of that's ever been done and by definitive is that I can't find the peer reviewed data that was ever you know developed to come up with one of these charts and in fact if you search around the internet you know seed longevity chart I don't know Greg we could even do this while we're talking if you google up how long does seeds last chart or whatever There are a number of places on the internet where you can find PDFs to download or to look at charts online. And what's amazing to me is so many of them are so similar. And in fact, a lot of them have the same information that's just been copied over and over and over again. And so what I learned in my own business over, you know, almost 30 years is that it just didn't apply. You know, they say tomatoes four to five years and we routinely got 90% germ on tomato seed that was over 10 years old, and on and on. Seeds always outlast what you see in those charts if you'll keep them cool, dark, dark, and dry. The other thing we always teach in our seed schools is that never give up. Even onion seed, which on a lot of those charts says one year. I've had 40-year-old onion seed that germinated, you know, cans of it at 80%. So you never give up. And remember, if only one seed germinates out of a whole bag full, it germinates. It made it. It can carry on that genetics. It can carry on the story and the culture and the history that was in it. You just never want to give up on seeds. And my challenge, and I've been doing this, I've been teaching seed saving classes since 1981. And many of them, all the way through the decades, I've always challenged anybody to find me a chart with how long seeds last that has the actual data. How many did they test? And did Uh they test them every year for 10 years and 20 years? Uh Same batches? How did they store them? Who did it? And when and where? Because I can't find that data. I think all of this was made up. I really do.
1: Right. I read, God, probably 10 years ago, and I really wish I would have saved this data. I looked for it and I can't find it. But I read one of the universities is doing a germ test on seeds from the 1920s. And then they do it every year. And it seemed to me that they were routinely getting significantly high germination rates from seeds that are almost 100 years old.
2: I've heard at least a half a dozen personal stories since I've moved to Arizona from people I know and respect and trust talking about seats that came out of clay pots yeah. in Anasazi ruins around here that are know. hundreds of years old. That germinated. You know, you just have to start, you know, looking at the world in a little bit different way. So I hope that helped answer your question. I yeah. would love it if a graduate student somewhere who's in their 20s set about to do this chart for the next 30 years, because you realize what you'd have to do is get large enough lots of seeds together, mm-hmm. store them in the same way for 30 years in every year, get them all out and do a germ test and see how it changes over the time so that you could come up with a chart for the year in which there's a real steep die. Off, where the majority of them start to die. That would be really an interesting chart. Now, if you had a different variety of, say, Detroit red Beet than mm-hmm. the one you used, it could be different for that. Right. You know, we know that there's variability, but it would at least give us a better right. baseline than the one we have. Than we right? have, yeah. So when I did seed
1: longevity chart, Fedco seeds came up, of course. They've had a list up right. for decades, right? Right.
2: That chart is valuable and you can go to Fedco to find that for its relationship between the varieties. In other words, you could probably generally expect onion seed to last fewer years than tomatoes, just looking yeah. at that chart. And that seems to be true. It is good for that. So
1: Leanne from Yorba Linda says, how come? There are only about 13 grains that are grown regularly now, even though there are thousands of strains of grain.
2: Yeah. Industrial agriculture, there is more profit in farming and a farm industry if you make it bigger for the people that own it than if it's smaller. And so as you get bigger, you just want to simplify things and use the same grains. Our modern bread and flour has to be so consistent that we breed very few varieties that actually fill those needs. Now, that happens to be my pet peeve lately, my new passion is help us find a way to get thousands of grains back in to our diets and our lives for all sorts of really great reasons. You can go to the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance website, and we have a heritage grain trials program. And we found seeds for 284 old heritage grains, the best ones we could find. We'll send you some and you can help us start to increase those seeds and keep basic data on them so that we can get a system of grains back up and running again.
1: Well, and one of the things you're playing with at your house is a hundred square feet of grains. You think you can grow out a significant amount of grain in that space, grow your own millet
2: and make your own bread, right? Five to seven loaves out of hundred square feet, they say. Yeah, this is big, you know, how many loaves of bread do you need? Right. I mean, gardening grains is what people all over the world still do. It's mm-hmm. what we used to do. This idea that yeah, it has to be amber waves with a combine and a 24-foot head is all part of this industrialization. And we've right. got to get over that, bring these things back into our yard. And furthermore, they're beautiful. They'll make you cry. When you grow Tibetan <laughs> purple barley uh-huh. or sin ale peel or how about queen Ashiba, which is a barley that came from queen Ashiba. You know, I've got purple majesty millet growing. I've got black einkorn, 40,000-year-old grain. It's so beautiful, it makes you want to cry, you know? And then you get to make cookies or bread from it. The fresh flower movement and growing your own grains is the next big thing. I really think it is. So
1: Joklam from Salt Lake City says, is it necessary to let a majority of seed pods ripen on a plant before you harvest, or can they be harvested any sooner?
2: Simple question complex answers. It depends on the plant. So you can learn which ones you can save early. And there are some earlier, you know. In other words, they ripen and the seeds finish after they're picked. And then which ones you absolutely have to leave until they're ready to shatter and or dehist would be the botanical term. So basic seed saving, my little book that costs $4.38, I think, on Amazon. It's a Kindle. will tell you. And seed saving manuals can help answer that question. If you want to write back in a question right now before the end of this program and tell me exactly what plant you're referring to – I could give you a more specific answer. For neck from Vancouver, Canada.
1: Sorry if I pronounced it incorrectly. In a book of Scottish cookery, they read about high oil cultivar called sandwich oats used for porridge. How could I find this or similar high value food for growing on their own? Wow.
2: Yeah, here we go. Okay, well, you know what all great seed aficionados do now? The people that are really, really into this, they Google it first. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I am doing that right now.
2: You know, most of the time, this would be a land race. What a perfect example, right? It came from an area. You gave the area. And you might put that in your Google search. Most likely, there's no sources for it. There's stories about it. Get the name of a person associated with a story. Find the newspaper reporter or the person who wrote the story. Or if there's a person mentioned that was growing it, then Google them. Find those people. And what I think you'll find and what we've found is that there's a really, exciting network of people who started asking questions like that 30, 40 years ago, even people like John Shirk, people like Ellie Ragosa, people like Monica Spiller. I'm just giving you a few names. The KUSA Foundation, K-U-S-A in California started looking for really great old heirloom and heritage grains and has a list. And so then lots of times, no matter who you search for, you'll search back into one of those networks. Maybe they, have them available now all those people that I just mentioned do have them as I said the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance you can search for the 284 varieties that we have available now on our site although I don't recognize that as a name and certainly I can help you find someone who might be able to answer your question now at the bottom of the barrel when all of those things don't work one of the places we can still go but is not assured to be there in the future is our own United States Department of Agriculture ah. Seed Bank. You can look for varieties online in their seed bank through a system called GRIN, G-R-I-N, the Genetic Resources Information Network. And you can Google that up. And if you follow instructions, you can get to a place eventually where you can search for varieties and things. They've assigned accession numbers and they've got all sorts of other, it looks like even complicated and mysterious descriptors they use to help differentiate varieties. So your name may not come up there. And so that's where it's nice to have someone who's played around in that system who has some experience that might want to help you. So again, if you You'll email me or you can put it in your portal and ask another question or whatever. I'll try to follow up and put you in touch with someone after you do your own research. I want you to do some first on your own because it's just so much fun. It's like a big treasure hunt. We're putting together an agricultural system that I really believe in the future, they will look back at our time and go, you know, that was the most important work being done. These people are finding old varieties, getting them up and running again just in time to take care of humanity through the storms that are coming. And so do some research and have some fun on the treasure hunt.
1: Perfect. I've got a question I'm going to throw at you. The next question after that, I want to go grab a book off of my bookshelf because it'll help answer Joachim's question from Salt Lake City. But Sharon from Boulder says, what does it mean to have the Chinese in control? You answer that. I'll be back in one minute.
2: Well, you know, who knows what that means? It may mean a lot if we go to war with them someday. They're building up their military. It may mean something sooner than that if we have a trade war with them. It may mean that we still get the seats that we need and want from them, but they're twice as expensive because of tariffs now. And it may not mean anything for a while. You know, we really don't know. What makes me uncomfortable, I'll just speak personally, is that it's just so far away. There's so many things that could happen to the merchant ship container system that could maybe not permanently disrupt a supply of seeds, but could... Just delay them. I spoke with a farmer at the farmer's market. This was several summers ago in Montana. They get all their seeds from Johnny's in Maine, right? And then now some of those seeds are being sourced from China and other contract growers around the United States and the world. His Johnny's order for some reason was delayed three weeks. And he goes, three weeks in Montana? I only have like a 12 week season. That ruined me. It really made me sit down and think about my seed sources, Mm -hmm. either buy enough a year ahead, you know, and who has the money or wants to do that, or try to, you know, (laughs) source them more locally. He was getting the message that we were trying to spread at the time about local seeds for local food. There you go. I'll just leave it at that.
1: So Yoakum from Salt Lake City says, could I get a list for the Southwest landrace varieties? I want to start that because I grabbed the book off of my shelf. And this book is 680 pages. When I opened it up, it was from the library of Greg and Michelle Peterson. Greg was my ex-wife who is no longer with us. From 1989, the book is called Cornucopia, A Sourcebook of Edible Plants.
2: Wow.
1: Right. And on each page, I just opened it up to page 326 and 327. There has got to be 80 different varieties. Endive on this particular page. So, you know, you might try... That I know, you did say Southwest landrace varieties. You know, basically, you just got to go exploring. This is one of those things where you just jump in and you know do some research and figure it out. Maybe Native Seed Search might have some of those as well, Bill.
2: You're right. Finding what we did for the grains was get the USDA publications that our government still has online for free as PDFs, and you can get to some of those under the public recommended books. I have links. <laughs> to some of those on the ruckandmountainseeds.org website. But they had state-by-state lists of the grains that were being grown in like 1939 and 1945 and 1949. And so we went back through those lists and saw what was actually working in the acreage in Arizona and New Mexico and Utah and Nevada. And so to come up with lists of grains. I know of no vegetable lists like that, but there are other USDA publications that I haven't looked at that might help us do that. Native Seed Search, as Greg mentions, is a seed conservation organization that's almost 40 years old, or is 40 years old, from Tucson, Arizona. They were set up to save the disappearing varieties from the Native Americans that have lived in the Southwest. And they steward about 2,000 varieties from 55 tribes. Mm -hmm. Now, those are land races in kind of a different sense. Those are land races for different cultures. And so, you know, some of them are really great. And you'll gravitate and probably want to use them in your garden. And so their list of what they have available is really great. I mean, a lot of regions don't have that. So that's a great resource. However, when I was the director there, we started finding land races. By land races, I mean ones for more modern diets. Mm -hmm. lettuce for instance and carrots and beets and things like that that were never in the native seed search collection they just weren't around when the spanish conquered this area and again we tried to find varieties the older land races that were most well adapted to southwest so people could start a seed saving adventure and now native seed still sells a number of those and in fact many of those are the same ones we use in the great american seed up it's all coming back around in a big circle and it's always being updated
1: yeah i'd really encourage you to to grow out your own seeds and you know, after three or four years of it growing in your space, like my lettuce that I harvested the other day, you know, you have made your own right. land race, you know.
2: Well, another huge and beautiful new resource is the Pima County Library in Tucson, Arizona, which has 22 branches throughout southern Arizona. And last year, they had 28,000 packets of seeds checked out of the library. Wow. <laughs> and, and they have the interlibrary loan. It's all online. And so you could go online at the Pima County County Library, Seed Library, and start looking around and seeing what's popular in the lettuces. And I'll bet many will, in a few years, if not already, is one of the most extensive lists of land races for the Southwest, because it's happening with hundreds, if not thousands of people involved doing trial and error and checking seeds back in for those things and helping to tell a story about them. That's a really great thing.
1: We have about 10 minutes left and I've got three or four or five more questions here. So I'm going to say no more than a minute and a half per question, Bill, (laughs) Okay, because I want to get to everybody's questions. So Karen from Glendale, Arizona says, what is the best way to store seeds? There are so many options or opinions out there that it gets confusing. I love the great american seed up and always buy seeds even and even share them so best way to store seeds
2: cool dark dry keep them below 80 don't put them in the sunshine or under bright lights light has an effect on them put them in a box that's the dark dry. Arizona and the Southwest, no problem. If you're going to put a bunch of seeds in a sealed box or jar or other kind of container, just don't do it on a rainy day. You know, wait till one of these 12% humidity days and you'll be fine. If you're going to put seeds in a refrigerator or freezer, make sure that you put them in some sort of sealed container. Plastic bags will allow moisture to go through. Mm -hmm. I put mine in plastic and then put those in a glass jar. I seal that glass jar up on a dry, hot day, and then I put them in the freezer. And then when you take them back out, out again, let that container sit until it warms up to room temperature. If you open it up when it's icy cold, the moisture air that you're opening it up in, in your house, will go into the jar and then condense on those cold sides, and you'll have water, moisture in with your seeds, and that's not a good idea. So cool, dark, and dry. If I could boil that down into the best way, I think, that we'll find to store seeds in the future, clay pots.
1: There you go. Vancouver, Canada, Fair Neck. Says, read that some varieties of watercress grow in Alaska. How could I find such a variety? A lot of First Nation reserves have large food security issues. With some funding, they could generate their own local seeds by using their own youth. Absolutely. Varieties of watercress that grow in Alaska. I think that's a
2: Google wow, question, right? There are two places. If I were starting that, found root seeds is in Palmer, Alaska. There you go. She, I'm trying to think of her name real quick, came to seed school and is one of us and is dedicated to the regional production of seeds and may or may not know of a source for that. There's an old school bioregional seed company up there, but I've never really communicated with them. It's called Denali Seeds. Oh, you might like, Google sense. that and check around with that. You know, watercress has flowers and those flowers produce seeds. Um, all else fails, you may have to go look for it. That would be the best part of the treasure hunt for me was I would love to go to Alaska, identify <laughs> the flowers and then wait around long enough for the seeds to be good. And once you get them, many kinds of watercress, variations of it, will grow in just damp, regular garden soil. You don't have to have you know flowing water all the time. I mean, you may want to plant it in your hydroponic system and plant some in your soil and see which ones do best and select for that. But it's a great idea. We need to bring more diversity into our diets with more different kinds of plants. That's an important project. I would stay on that one. And if I can help, let me know.
1: Adina says, what is the shortest germination period you've ever had i'm going to say basil but what do you got
2: oh man we have had sonoran white wheat germinate in one day (laughs) so that's probably the shortest for me
1: yeah basil i've had basil germinate in just you know 48 hours or something
2: i just had a pepper seed i planted six weeks ago just germinate today yeah just for the other side you know so (laughs) never give up either you know things just take a long time sometimes
1: let's see here fair neck in Vancouver says in France their bakers making heritage style breads are getting farmers to maintain several traditional grain cultivars for high value bread products and we're doing that here in the southwest as well.
2: Oh yeah, Don Guerra's doing that, Barrio Bakery in Tucson. There was just an article in the Los Angeles Times about five bakeries that are forming their own network of growers. The Tehachapi Grain Project people just outside of the basin there are helping grow that. These Mm -hmm. sorts of things are the Bread Lab of course, Stephen Jones up in the Siskiyou Valley in Washington is helping to do that. This is what's happening all over. And Andre Kempton's doing this in Taos, New Mexico. Lots of new examples of it. And the reason I think it's successful is that we now have enough intelligent, well-traveled, and experienced Americans around now to really appreciate it. You know, once you bite into Uh. a piece of bread that was fresh milled flour and baked the old sourdough way. It's just hard to go back. It's like, what? This is bread. I finally know why it's so popular. Thank you for pointing that out.
1: Yeah, Yokum from Salt Lake City. Is there a preferred material that you store seeds in long term? For me, <laughs> I like your idea of the plastic bag in a jar in a free year.
2: Yeah, I have mine in large plastic tubs under my bed. I live in 400 square feet. I live in a tiny house and I had to build my own bed so it was just tall enough that all my bins could go underneath. But literally, every square inch underneath my bed is filled with bins that are filled with seeds. So that's how I'm doing it now. Yeah, I've stored them in freezers and fridges. That works too. Again, you know, my perfect, and maybe someday I'll get enough time in retirement to make my own clay pots with my own lids and that's how I'd like to do it. Why? Because it's the only system I know of that's been tested that has successfully saved seeds for hundreds of years. Every other thing that we're doing modern wise, we haven't tested for a hundred years. Nobody's ever kept seeds in a freezer for a hundred years. We've hardly had freezers for a hundred years. And so in the liquid nitrogen they're using at the National Seed Storage Lab, we haven't had them in there for more than 20 years now or right. 30 years at most. We don't know if they're gonna last a thousand years, but we do know of seeds that have come out of clay pots that are that old. So that's where I'm going. One of the oldest germinated seeds
1: was out of a pot in the Middle East. Was a date palm? Isn't that how the story goes?
2: Right. Yeah. 2,000-year-old yeah. date palm seeds that germinated. Wow. That's used as an example because it was carbon dated. You know, they got a pretty definitive look at how old they were.
1: All right. Well, that's the end of the questions, and that's the end of our hour. We do this and, every month, usually the third Tuesday of the month or so, third or fourth Tuesday of the month, Talking Seeds. So, And we do them live, and then they're available on our podcast. Any parting thoughts there, Mr. McDorman?
2: Well, Well, if your appetite was wet, you can also sign up for Seed School online, which would answer almost everything I talked about tonight, which is the culmination of 30 years of teaching seed courses that was boiled down into a six-day school, which we still do. We're doing one in Vermont at Sterling College in August. Of this year coming up. And then we boiled that down into Seed School Online, seven modules. And so it's really the culmination of a life's work and the interaction with thousands of students who've taken the courses, who told us what they liked, what they wanted to learn and what we could leave out. It's pretty unique. And I'm not saying all of this tonight as a commercial. And in fact, when we talked about the seed up, I was thinking about that earlier. You know, Greg, we're not doing commercials. We're doing this because we really believe we got to get thousands and thousands of people out there growing and saving their own seeds. That's the only way forward, folks. And so that's why I'm really talking about this. And and we're just lucky enough to live long enough to have made enough mistakes
1: to develop (laughs)
2: resources like this that you can now take advantage of or tell your friends about.
1: Yeah. So Seed School Online is SeedSchoolOnline.com. We do have a free webinar if you want to sign up for it. It's called Seed Saving Hacked. You can find out at SeedSavingHacked.com. Org. Seed School is great. Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance, Tell, give us 15 seconds on Rocky Mountain Seed.
2: Seeds for the Rocky Mountains, from the Rocky Mountains. We have a seed storage program now with over 250 people that have dedicated themselves to growing and sharing at least one seed. You can find them all on a map. We've got a seed teacher directory. You can find seed teachers for your region. We've done three seed school teacher trainings. We're going to do another one this fall for farmer professionals, people that mm-hmm. train for farmers. We've got a heritage grain program that I mentioned. You can sign up and get access to grains and help us increase and start to take data on those and share them. We're still looking for places for more backup safety seed vaults in the Rocky Mountain West. If you're from outside the Rocky Mountain, and you're interested in regional seed organization for your own region and you can't find one, we'll help you learn everything that we've learned about how to start one so you can start one. We need to have regional networks and directories of all the people doing this so we can get more education and more seeds shared more quickly. That's probably summarizes. So rockymountainseeds.org.
1: Perfect, thank you. Thank you for all your great information. greatamericanseedup.org if you want more information on that, it's an epic event. Go watch the videos if nothing else. Nothing like having 400 people in a room scooping up seeds. The energy is palpable and exciting and like that. So we'll catch you next month. Thank you for being here, Bill.
2: Yes, thank you,
1: Greg. As I always like to say, farm out. And we will catch you on the flip side.
0: I have said it many times, I am a lifelong learner. And I'm excited to let you know about a unique global online event made just for those of us who want to grow our own food. In this four-day online learning opportunity, a collection of visionary growers, gardeners, permaculturists, and homesteaders share garden hacks, slow tools, gadgets, and gardening technologies. Join tens of thousands of budding growers and learn how to save time, energy, and money while doing what you love most, growing your own food and medicine. Visit urbanfarm.org forward slash gardenhacks to register for this free online summit.